Daniel chapter 4, starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers and the diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He's called Belshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy God is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches. From every creature, from it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed I looked and there before me was a holy one a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots be bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with animals and among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given to the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Do open your Bibles back up to Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 19 to 27, and then Trevor will help us think through the rest of the chapter as he preaches. So, let's pick up in Daniel chapter 4, verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, 
with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger come down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord and the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Trevor. Well, please keep your Bible open at that uh, page. And uh, whether you're joining us at home or... Here in the centre, it's great to be together. There will come a time when we can actually all be together. But until that time, we thank God for the wonders of technology uh, that enable us to have this uh, virtual meeting at home. And for those of us who are gathered in in the hall here, although it does look something like a bank robbers convention, um, so I'm just hoping that we did lock the, the door up before we left home. But it's lovely. If you've made it here this morning, well done. Let's pray. Let's ask that the Lord would uh, speak to us this day. Father, we thank you that your word is timeless, that the human heart does not change, and whether people lived in the time of the Babylonians or whether we live in the 21st century, our need is the same, that you will humble us under your mighty hand and that we might learn to walk uh, with you. Uh, in trust all the days of our life. So please speak to us by your Holy Spirit this morning. Whether we're at home, whether we're gathered here in the Liddell Hall, Lord, come and glorify Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, growing up just down the road in Tolworth in the 1960s, we had a fail-safe security system. If anyone got locked out of the house, no problem. There was always a key under the mat at the back door. Now, over half the Bible comes to us in a story form. The Bible writers of the narratives often like to leave the key at the back door. And we have a great point in instance here in Daniel 4 where the key has been left at the back door to this rather weird and strange story and dream of this ancient king. There it is in verse 37. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exhort and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There's the key. 
Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He's written this letter, Nebuchadnezzar, that is personally to each of us. He tells us that in verse 1. To the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth. Listen, says Nebuchadnezzar, this is what I've had to learn. It's taken me years and years and years, but now I've learned it. And I want you to learn it. I want you to know what's good for you. Because at the end of the day, there is only one king, the most high God. It's not me, says Nebuchadnezzar, it's not you, it's him. And the first four chapters of Daniel tell us the story of this great Babylonian king, this pagan emperor who finally came to that point after years and years to humble submission and trust in the God of the Bible. And he wants everyone to know just how great and good God is, that his kingdom is forever. As he puts it in verse 3, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. And at the heart of this incredible story is the patience and kindness of God in dealing with this proud man. And that immediately takes us from some detached curiosity in this ancient story right into our lives here in the 21st century. He may be an extreme, extreme case, but there's something of Nehemiah in every single human being. There's something of Nehemiah in every one of us gathered here this morning and every one of us watching at home. And however well we might camouflage it, by nature, we will always fall into Nehemiah's, into Nebuchadnezzar's way of thinking, that we are the God of our own little lives. And for Christians, I think one of the things I've learned over the years, over decades, is that pride is our besetting sin. So, like Nebuchadnezzar, we must learn what it is to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand if we're to know him better, if we're to see him for who he actually is, and if we're to enjoy and love him now and forever. And this is how it begins. Very simply, heaven humbles a proud man. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was some man. The Babylonian empire that he established lasted for over 70 years. And he ruled over it for 40 of those years. It was one of the greatest in the history of the world. 4,000 years on, its magnificence still intrigues historians and archaeologists. I once met a man called Professor Donald Wiseman. He was a, uh, a very well-known Christian archaeologist who in the 1930s had actually gone on an archaeological dig to uh, Babylon with no less than Agatha Christie. And uh, he later became very famous. He wrote numerous books on a Christian view of archaeology. And as an old man, he invited me. Well, I wasn't the old man at that time, but he invited me as an old man to his house. I went into his study, this cavernous place, lined with books and artifacts and so on. And as I went in, he said, oh, just move the doorstop, old boy, will you, and close the door. Well, I picked up this lump of stone that was acting as the doorstop and moved it. He said, what you've got in your hands is from Nebuchadnezzar's palace. 
4,000 years old lump of stone. It was astonishing. It's astonishing how this empire of Nebuchadnezzar has lasted in one sense and intrigues historians right to today. His playlist of achievements is quite something. The vast, magnificent city of Babylon, famous for its hanging gardens. One of the wonders, seven wonders of the ancient world. He had an empire that, as I said, lasted for 70 years. And still today, its artifacts occupy a floor in the British Museum in London. It became a center for arts and culture. It actually housed the first Glastonbury, the first music festival. And Nebuchadnezzar grew a well-educated, multiracial civil service. He was a brilliant administrator. Daniel and his three friends were part of that uh, civil service. By any reckoning, he was a brilliant man. He was cultured, clever, a visionary, an empire builder. And he used his skills and talents to great effect. Now, admittedly, he had a bit of a nasty side to him. He was not averse to cremating a few dissidents. We saw that last week in Daniel chapter 3. But by the standards of his day, he was relatively humane. He was ready to take counsel, listen to his advisors. So his boasting wasn't empty. He had, indeed, plenty to be proud about. But his problem was one that we often fall into. He thought too much of himself and too little of the God who had given him his talent in the first place. He was very reluctant to acknowledge that all that he was and all that he had and all that he achieved had actually been given to him by Almighty God. And so God sets about humbling him. It's fascinating how Nebuchadnezzar's story occupies these first four chapters of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, God had to powerfully remind him of the fact that he was God. He gave him that dream, do you remember, back there in chapter 2. And in giving the fulfillment of the dream, this is what God said through Daniel in verse 37. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. And you are that head of gold that he saw in his vision. He was indeed the golden boy. But God had made him the golden boy. And it looked like initially in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had recognized that fact. He's humbled by Daniel's interpretation of this weird dream of a giant metallic statue, which is representative of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and those that were to follow, and of this small rock that comes along like an Exocet missile into that statue and destroys it. That small rock being none other than the eternal kingdom that God is going to grow into a mighty mountain. Nebuchadnezzar sees that. And in verse 2, in chapter 2 rather, he says, Daniel's God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. It all looks so hopeful. Now he's going to come to his senses. Now he's got it. God alone is king. Praise God that you've shown that to Nebuchadnezzar, Lord. 
But within a few years, it's as if it never happened. As chapter 3 unfolds, as we saw last week, Nebuchadnezzar slips into delusions of divinity. He builds a huge golden statue, demands that all people recognize his godlike status by bowing down before it. His pride, of course, is then exposed by Daniel's enemies. And Nebuchadnezzar is forced into the face-saving sacrifice of his most trusted and beloved counsellor, that of Daniel and his three companions, only to see them miraculously protected in the fiery furnace by the Most High God, Nebuchadnezzar's favourite phrase for the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar declares religious freedom for the Jews as a result. Again, it looks so hopeful. Surely this is it. Surely now he's going to bow the knee. And yet it proves to be another false start. Yet remarkably, God is not finished with Nebuchadnezzar. He sends him another dream, the dream that we've just read here in chapter 4. The nightmare of an enormous tree being felled on the orders of an angel from heaven and a stump left in the ground. The stump is bound in iron, and yet it transmutes into an insane, animal-like man, roaming the forest amongst the wild beasts for seven years. Once again, Belshazzar, Daniel, is summoned to give the interpretation. But even this courageous man hesitates to do so. No wonder. For the tree that is felled and the stump that turns into a man who goes mad is none other than Nebuchadnezzar himself. Imagine delivering that news. There's no spinning that one, is there? But, but maybe now, maybe now he'll come to his senses. God has warned him. God has been so kind towards him. Maybe now he'll abandon his proud ways and bow before the Most High God once and for all. But maybe not. For 12 months later, there he is, walking on the roof of his palace there in Babylon, surveying the grandeur of it all. And suddenly, he's overwhelmed by his own brilliance. The nightmare warning of a year earlier is simply discarded. He just can't help himself. And before you know it, he blurts out there in verse 29, 29 is this not the great Babylon that I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. I mean, how stupid can you get? No sooner had the words left his mouth than heaven's judgment falls upon him, just as promised. And in verse 31 we read, this is what is decreed for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from the people, will live with the wild animals and eat grass like an ox. Seven years will pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to whoever he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar, I alone am God. And as God, I will always have the last word on everything. Now, this has been a long, long journey for this man, and yet it's not over yet. It's going to take seven more years 
until at long last he finally turns to God in repentance and faith and finally acknowledges that it is God who is king, that ultimately heaven rules, not he. Look how he puts it in verses 2 to 3. The Most High is the one true mighty God and miraculous God, not me. In verse 17, the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, not me. The Most High will have the final word on all people, verse 24, not me. And verse 37, the Most High alone is to be praised, exalted and glorified as the King of heaven, not me. And what's more, says Nebuchadnezzar, everything he does is right, his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And that's me. It's an astonishing story. It's one of the longest and most remarkable conversion stories in the Bible. It's taken years and years and years before this proud man will finally bow the knee before God. I think I'd have given up hope, any hope, that this arrogant man would ever come to faith. But thank God he is so patient. As the New Testament puts it, he's not willing for any to perish. Which is why, Christians, we go on praying for our family and our friends, however stubborn, however resistant, however distant, however near and then far away again they come. In God's mercy, he's not finished with them yet. Never give up praying. You'll remember in this very room back a year, 18 months ago, Ollie Donahue being baptized, wonderfully coming to Christ. First heard of Christ through Ian Fry and the school's ministry and coming to the YPF here at Chesington 27 years on before he bows the knee to Christ. Why did God allow those 27 years, said Ollie to me once? I've no idea other than to show how wonderful his grace is, Ollie. That's the truth of the matter. So go on praying, dear Christian friend. But there's another side to the humbling of this man. And Nebuchadnezzar testifies to it here in chapter 4. It's not just that God has to humble us to bring us to our senses, to bring us to himself. He does that in order that our eyes might be opened to how great he is. That we might rejoice in the fact as verse 26 puts it, that heaven rules. One of the most awful things about pride is it skews and it minimizes our view of God. It blinds us to the vastness of his power, the blinding purity of his character, the wonders of his ways, the stunning beauty of his love and faithfulness. But now... I want you to see, now these things fill Nebuchadnezzar's vision and they thrill his heart. In a sense, his soul dances with gratitude and praise. Look how he expresses it. Come with me, please. Look at verse 2. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders the Lord has performed for me. His kingdom, not my puny one, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. That's how big he is. What's your view of God? That's how big he is. Verse 17 says in Epigenesis, I want all the living to know that the most 
high as sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to whoever he wishes. It perplexes us, the people he gives these kingdoms to, doesn't it? But God knows what he's doing. And in case we don't get that, Nebuchadnezzar repeats that very thing twice more in his testimony, in verses 25 and 32. Then he says in verse 34, I raised my eyes to heaven, my sanity was restored. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. The wow factor had really got a grip on this man's heart now, hasn't it? So he concludes in verse 37. Yes, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, miracle of miracles, I praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Tell me, do you get excited thinking about this God that Nebuchadnezzar now rejoices in? Does your heart, like his, dance at the sound of his name? If not, if grace doesn't thrill us, we have a pride problem. For we've not seen the Lord for who he really is. Yet how patient he's been with us. And those of us in this room and at home who've become Christians, however long we've been a Christian, we can look at the time before we became a Christian and be amazed at the patience of God to us when we were proud and arrogant and resistant and wanting to be God of our own little lives. That's where Nebuchadnezzar now is. But when you see the Lord for who he really is, when you see how patient he's been with you, how faithful in chipping away at your pride, you begin to worship him. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we fool ourselves that we're in charge. We think ourselves so clever, so sophisticated, so wise, so divine. If it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. Because in a moment, this Lord can turn our lives upside down. He can touch the fine balance of a man's mind and show him that pride is a form of insanity. For to live as if you are God is surely madness. God can do that. God can touch our lives with a tragedy to pull us up short, to show us that we are not in control. In a nanosecond, he can allow an unseen microscopic virus to bring the whole of the world to its knees. He's done that. In your lifetime, in my lifetime, this very year. What a God. What a God. He alone is God. He rules over the kingdoms of this world. And to become a Christian by the grace of God is to come to our senses. It's to acknowledge God alone is God. That he alone can forgive our foolishness and our pride. And Nebuchadnezzar's story reminds us that whilst God will not humiliate us, he will and has to humble us to bring him to himself. I wonder if he's been doing that in your life. I wonder if you're watching this later on in the week even, 
not yet a Christian, and yet God has been humbling you these past weeks and months. Can I plead with you, don't rail against him. See his incredible patience and kindness because he has sent these things to bring you to your senses, to get on your knees before him and call out to him, God most high, you rule, not I. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to trust myself to you. And if we are a Christian, for those of us whose hearts, however weakly, do dance at the sound of his name, let me remind you that what God is about in our lives is, to, is a lifetime battle with your pride and my pride. That's what's going on. You see, pride, we know, is the first sin to display itself in our lives. Pride is also the last one to depart our lives. And in one sense, the whole of our Christian life is God dealing with that. The Apostle Peter found that. Really was such a proud man as Peter. Oh, he loved the Lord with all his heart, but he was so proud of his own achievements. He was proud of his nationality. He was proud of the fact that God had made him an apostle. And God had to strip that away year after year after year. But by the end of his life, here's this dear old apostle. What does he say in 1 Peter? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, Peter goes on to say, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. Cast your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. You see, Peter had learned that pride and anxiety, though we don't realise it, actually go together. For anxiety is another form of pride. What do we become anxious over? Actually, that which we have no control of. Isn't that the case? We're God in our own little lives. We want to control things. This is happening. I can't control it. I'm going to get anxious. It's a form of pride. And for a Christian, it's to lose sight of who God is. God says to us, look, if I've done the greatest thing for you, if I've given my beloved son to rescue, if I've given his life up that your life might come into my kingdom, do you think I'm going to withhold from you that which you need? Not that which you want, but that which you need in life. I know best. Heaven rules. Now, it's invariably painful to be humbled under God's mighty hand. Is that happening to us as a church at this time? The situation we find ourselves in through COVID and all the uncertainty that that brings humbles us. Coupled to that, the departure of a lead pastor must surely humble us and cause us to throw ourselves in renewed dependency upon the Lord in prayer. Because prayer, prayer, shows our dependence upon God. Prayer is that glorious act. I can't do anything about this, God, but only you can. But I'm going to pray because you're my heavenly Father and you know best and your kingdom will come and your will will be done. 
So as a church, God says to us, cast, cast your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. Do you think he's going to be caught out by COVID? Do you think he's going to be caught out by the circumstances that this and thousands of tens of thousands of churches face around the world? Of course not. In the passage of time, we'll see that he'll use it for his glory and we'll marvel afresh at the wonders of his way. It's also good for us as individual Christians to be humbled. To have our pride in our supposed achievements scuppered. Be it our career, our family, our sporting ability, our intellect. God exposes them for the ugly idols that they are. It's good for us to have that innate self-sufficiency that we so easily slip into to be undermined. To think we can fix it. No, you can't. It's good for us when that smug superiority or envy or sarcasm with which we often view other people is exposed for the arrogance for which it is. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. Is God humbling us as a church, as individuals? If so, it's a divine mercy. He loves us too much to do otherwise. And his purpose is to get us as a church, as individuals, to a place where afresh we see and marvel and wonder and glory in his being, his character, his faithfulness, his goodness, his justice, and walk humbly through life with him. Did you notice how Nebuchadnezzar's testimony ends there in verse 37? He says, everything God does is right and all his ways are just. It's actually a very telling and intriguing comment because it takes us, whether we realize it or not, to an intriguing moral quandary for the Lord. You see, how is it that God can forgive and accept a man like Nebuchadnezzar? Or come to that, people like you and I who've risen up in rebellion against him, who've so often used our tongues to give voice to our pride and our actions in a way that's demeaned others. How can he be right and just in saying, okay, you can come back to me. I will accept you. How can he do that? How can you hold righteousness and justice together? The answer, of course, comes when we turn the pages of the Bible forward another thousand or so years, and we arrive in the New Testament, and with it, God's answer to that dilemma. He sends his beloved Son, the most high God of heaven, comes to be the most humble man who ever walked this earth. There is nothing more astonishing than that in the world. The most high this God who fashioned the universe, who sustains every single one of us by his own power, comes humbly to a stable, to a working man's life, eventually to a cross. Why? 
that his justice and righteousness might be put on display at Calvary. As Christ comes to rescue us from the rightful wrath of God's righteousness and justice and take the punishment upon himself that now God can freely accept us and forgive us whether we're a Nebuchadnezzar, a Trevor Archer or whoever we are. Heaven's most high becomes earth's most humble to save us. It's incredible. The king of heaven stoops to be the servant of God, to reconcile God's justice and righteousness at the cross for you, for I. So, as we close, let me remind you of the sweetest invitation that ever fell from the lips of the Lord Jesus. We read it there in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's very tiring trying to be God. Have you noticed that? It's really exhausting trying to be God, thinking we're in control. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What is the yoke, Lord? What are we to learn? I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The greatest king of them all stoops to be the greatest servant for proud and foolish people like you and I. Isn't that astonishing? Praise his name. Trust him today. Ask him for his power to walk daily, seeing ourselves in our rightful place under him, glorifying in his sovereign power and love and mercy and walking humbly with God through this week, through this month, through this year, through the remainder of the days that God gives us upon earth for his glory. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gentle Saviour, blessed Holy Spirit, we know, Lord, that together you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. And if today, like Nebuchadnezzar, you have convicted us of our foolish arrogance, our stubborn pride, please enable us to turn to you and acknowledge that you alone are God. And by your Holy Spirit, empower and humble us to turn to you, the gentle and lowly Saviour, that we might be forgiven and accepted into your eternal kingdom. And Father, as your people, whose understanding is so incomplete, whose affections are so, so often so cold, whose best deeds are often deeply tainted with pride and selfishness, please, please forgive us. Show us afresh the beauty of Christ the one who, though he was God, humbled himself. 
And by the power of your Holy Spirit, form Christ in our mind, in our heart, in our actions, that we might serve you with a pure heart and pure motives. And Lord, may we daily fix our eyes on your unshakable, eternal kingdom, that we might live for your glory and pleasure. And in so doing so, discover just how great and good you are. Lord, help us as a church, help us as individuals. May Christ be glorified in and through us for your glory's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I've chosen a a last hymn for us to sing, and it is that uh, great hymn of Isaac Watts. Well, of course, we're not going to sing it. If you're at home, you can sing it, of course, and uh, you could say it at least. But we could use this if we're here as a prayer. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Why don't we, we stand and sing, uh, or stand and listen, and, but say this as a, as a prayer to God that would echo the desire of our heart, and maybe for some of us, for the first time ever, to come to Christ in repentance and faith. So let's stand And let's hear this great hymn.